The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. If you would please direct your attention to Luke, the second chapter, where we'll see a, a, an account that is very familiar to us, and as far as the four Gospels are concerned, peculiar to the Gospel of Luke, where we see a period of Jesus's early life, not as an infant in a manger, but as a young boy who is in the middle of his growth, and he's with his parents, um, a situation again that we're very familiar with. I want to consider that text as a springboard into our discussion this evening. Beginning in verse 41 of Luke chapter 2, Luke by inspiration records that his, Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? So they did not understand, but they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. There's a lot of things that we point out from this text from time to time, often centered around Jesus himself at an early age, being about his father's business, being interested in spiritual matters. The fact that Jesus, although God in the flesh, was also a man and it required his faith to do what God called him to do. It required growth in that faith. As Jesus increased, verse 52, in wisdom and stature and in favor with both God and men. I want us to consider, though, for a little bit this evening, Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary, who had been going to Jerusalem every single year, as Jews were to do, to observe the feast. Specifically, it says the feast of the Passover in verse 41. And I'm sure... Um, as any parents would be, they were very troubled to see that their son was not among them after they had departed from Jerusalem and perhaps were in a panic as we especially see those kinds of feelings in the words of Jesus' mother in verse 48. Why have you done this to us? Why have you troubled us like this? We have been looking for you. And she adds, we have sought you anxiously. This tore his mother up. And I think that mothers could obviously relate to that and understand that. I'm sure there's been a time when you've been in the supermarket or been in some kind of store and thought your child was right with you and came to the knowledge that he or she was not. And perhaps panic swept over you like it did with Mary. And you finally found that child and wondered why the child would ever do such a thing to you. But I want us to consider something that is specifically recorded for us in verse 44 that they supposed him to have been in the company. It wasn't that they knew he was in the company. 
New Oxford American Dictionary defines supposition as an uncertain belief. They had a belief that he was among them, but it wasn't something they could have had as a certainty. And that's because they didn't do the necessary investigation and examination to know for certain that, yes, our son is right here before us in the flesh. We see him. We know he's here and we are certain about his presence. But they made a supposition and that supposition may have been warranted because it says in verse 41 that they did this every year and Jesus is 12 years old. So for 12 years of Jesus's existence on earth, they had been traveling to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover and for 11 years, perhaps they had gone to Jerusalem and left Jerusalem and either had their boy with them or perhaps he was among the relatives as they supposed at this time and they found him and he was just with the crowd. And so it may be, we don't know the very circumstances of this visit. We don't know the past visits and how those played out, but it's very possible that it was um, a supposition that was warranted, but it was still a supposition. They weren't certain that Jesus was among them. And too many, I would suggest to you, do the same thing that Mary and Joseph did, although in a far more spiritual application. They make a supposition that Jesus is among them. That is, that Jesus is in fellowship with them and they in fellowship with Jesus. They suppose, and it is an uncertain belief, as supposition is defined, that Jesus is in their midst, that they have the hope of salvation, that they're right with God, that Jesus is indeed their friend and they are walking in the footsteps of Jesus, but they couldn't tell you for certainty that Jesus is with them. I want to suggest to you that even sometimes Christians fall into that category where they know the truth, but when it comes down to their personal relationship with Jesus, whether they are right with God or not, whether they are in fellowship with Jesus or not, they merely suppose, and it may be something that they have confidence in, yet it is still just a supposition. It's not a certainty. Perhaps they have done something that they suppose, although may not have been right, it's something God will overlook or Jesus will take care of, and they suppose that God is still with them, that Jesus is still with them, that they still have the hope of salvation. I would suggest to you that that's a foolish thing to do. We need to make sure we have a certainty of our fellowship with God. We need to make, a, make sure we have a certainty of the presence of Jesus in our lives, that He is with us and that we are with Him. We ought never suppose something spiritually, but we should know for sure that that is the truth, that we are in the truth, and therefore we are on God's side. Along with this discussion is the necessity of discussing self-responsibility. And that's what this is all about. It was no one's responsibility except for Joseph and Mary to make certain that Jesus was in their midst. They thought that he was in the company and they sought him among their relatives, but he wasn't there. And we don't know what happened, but sometimes in the midst of such an uncertainty and a worry, we can start to put the blame on other people. Why isn't he with you? I thought you were watching him. I thought he was he was among you playing with your children. Why, why isn't he here? Why didn't you tell him he wasn't with you? But really it was all their fault. They didn't make for certain before leaving Jerusalem that Jesus was right by their side. They made a supposition 
it's our responsibility as each individual to make sure we're not supposing that Jesus is with us, but that we know for certainty that he is. Each individual is accountable for himself. That has regard with the sin and righteousness of an individual's life. In Ezekiel 18 and verse 19, the scripture records, yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. You know, it's very popular today for individuals to blame their upbringing and their parents, perhaps blame their friends for who they've turned into. And I'm not saying that those things don't have a great effect on a person's life. An individual who does not have a good home life perhaps comes from a broken home, an abusive home, perhaps comes from a home that has no interest in spiritual matters at all is kind of starting the race a little bit behind the, the starting line. But that's never really an excuse. Each one is accountable for himself. The truth is out there. The truth can be found. And each one is responsible himself for whether he is in sin or whether he is righteous before God. In Romans, the fifth chapter in verse 12, the apostle Paul addresses something that many people in the religious world don't have a great understanding of, and that is the concept of Adam's sin. And he says in verse 12 of Romans 5, Therefore, just as the, through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. A lot of times they'll go to that passage to suggest that, see, all sin in Adam, that is, they're guilty of his sin, but the passage teaches the exact opposite. Death spread to all men because of all men's sin. And he goes on to explain that further. Until the law, sin was, in, uh, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of uh, him who was to come. And so that shows that if, if we have inherited Adam's sin, it would have been the exact same sin that he committed. But he says it spread even to those who had not sinned according to the likeness of Adam's transgression has nothing to do with what Adam and Eve did. Individuals a lot of times kind of put the responsibility on them, place the blame on them. If it wasn't for Adam and Eve, we'd all be living the good life. And that's just not true because all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And so sin and righteousness are on the individual. And because of that, we need to realize the very real importance of understanding our relationship with our judge. In Romans, the 14th chapter, the Apostle Paul deals with subject matter pertaining to liberties and our responsibilities toward each other regarding liberties. These are not matters of sin, but there were judgments being made and people were showing contempt for one another for things that they had no right to judge about. And so he deals with the topic of judgment and who the true judge is in verse 4. He says, who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or, fall, or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. He's not talking about sin here, but what we want to take away from this is that it's God who's the ultimate judge. And this individual shouldn't be judged by you because he's living before God. He goes on to say that, and beginning in verse 8, for if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? 
But we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. He's saying whether that individual is taking of that meat in good conscience or not is not your quarrel, but he'll be judged by God. It's his responsibility to live in such a way, especially in these realms of liberties, but also in general to where he's able to stand before the judgment seat of God as a righteous man. The sin and his righteousness is on himself and he will be accountable before God himself. You won't get to say whether he goes to heaven or hell and you won't be able to help him anyway. Each individual is accountable for himself and we need to realize that great responsibility. In Galatians, the sixth chapter in verse one, the apostle Paul in speaking in a context of walking according to the spirit addresses the responsibility that brethren have to each other, but then also addresses the responsibility they have to themselves. He says, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, that is walking according to the Spirit's teaching, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, you might have someone who, who thinks that he's too great, too good to bear someone else's burdens. And so he addresses in verse 3, if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one, let each one examine his own work and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. It may have been that there were individuals looking at that weak brother who was caught in a sin and instead of reaching out to aid him and help him, were actually looking down on him and puffing themselves up as they compared themselves with him. It says you're going to stand on your own work alone. And that's when he says each one should bear or shall bear his own load. And verse 2 the word burdens is baros, and it means weight, and it has to do, especially in this context, with, with any kind of trial or tribulation or situation where we can help another individual or to bear their own load. But load of verse 5 is a word which means an invoice as part of freight and figuratively a task or service which is specifically given to one individual, and only they can perform that task. You can't help them with that. It's their responsibility. If they fail, they fail in and of themselves, and it's no one else's fault except them. And that's the concept of walking in the Spirit. It's, it's our responsibility. It's Jeremiah's responsibility to follow God's Word. And so why would I ever make a supposition about my relationship with Jesus? Well, I suppose that I'm right with God. Well, well I suppose that that Jesus would be okay with this. I, I suppose that Jesus would understand. I suppose that God's grace will cover this and I don't need to worry about it at all. Why would we ever make a supposition about a matter as serious as whether we sow to the flesh and then reap corruption or sow to the Spirit and then reap everlasting life? Why would we suppose? I suppose it's an apple seed. I want an apple tree. I suppose it's an apple seed, but I don't know for certainty. Why wouldn't we seek certainty? It's foolish to make suppositions about something as important as our soul. And our soul's value shows that it's foolish to do so. In Mark the 8th chapter in verse 36, when Jesus calls the disciples to take up their cross and follow him, he says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? These are obviously rhetorical questions the people that Jesus is speaking to should know the answer with certainty. 
He's highlighting the value of the soul. There is nothing in the world that is worth your soul. There's nothing that you can give in exchange for your soul that is worth it. Your soul is the most valuable thing that you possess. God has given us so many things, but the number one thing on the list is our soul. We wouldn't make a supposition with our money. I I suppose that my money went to the right place. I suppose that I have enough money in the bank to make this purchase or to get through this next week with all the bills that are coming in. I, I suppose, but I'm not going to actually check. We wouldn't do that because it's too important. Well, why would we ever make any suppositions about our soul? It's foolish to make suppositions about our soul's position because it leaves room for failure. In Matthew, the seventh chapter, I would suggest to you that these people Jesus alludes to live their life in a supposition because they reach the judgment not being right with God. And it's not for lack of ability to know, but it was for a negligence to make that a certainty. In Matthew seven twenty one, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They thought, they supposed they were doing these things in the name of Jesus. But in reality, they were without law. It was impossible for them to be certain that these things were done in the name of Jesus, or else they would have had book, chapter, and verse. And if they had book, chapter, and verse, Jesus would not have said, depart from me. He would have said, well done, thy good and faithful servant, enter into my rest. But he says they're practicing lawlessness. Here was the law for you to check and be certain, and you just supposed, and you were actually practicing lawlessness. He goes on to show that we need to be certain about these things. When he says in verse 24, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. The one who has a certainty is the one who has found God's will, who has seen Jesus' words, who has read the law of Christ and has done what it said. You cannot get to heaven based on a supposition that you're doing right before God. I want us to notice, though, in Luke's account of this very situation, he adds a phrase in regard to the wise man who built his house on the rock. And he said that this man who does Jesus' words, he is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it for it was founded on the rock. In Matthew 7, it says that he laid the foundation on the rock. But in Luke 6 and verse 48, it showed the effort that took. He dug deep to find that rock. They didn't pour some in and make a foundation. They dug to the rock underneath the soil and then they built the house on the rock. And it took effort. It took certainty. They didn't dig down some way and and maybe fill some clay or whatever it may have been in that region and, and it was a little more firm and they thought, well, maybe that's the rock. So we'll go ahead and build on this. That's a foolish man. They dug deep until they knew for certainty 
that they have hit rock bottom. And then they built the house and they could have that confidence because they didn't suppose. They did their due diligence. Supposition in realms of spiritual life is a form of negligence. Notice in Hebrews 2, 1 through 3, the Hebrew writer says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and confirmed to us by those who heard Him, and God bore witness with these miracles? I want us to notice that He speaks of neglecting the great salvation. If you neglect this great salvation, the, the, the figure of the shadow of the Old Testament. See, when they were under the shadow and they transgressed, they received a just reward. Now we're in the figure. This is the substance. This is the realization. This is what it was all pointing to. And if they were disobedient and received a just reward, how much more will we be punished if we neglect this great salvation? But I want us to notice how that great salvation is neglected. It's seen in verse one with his encouragement for them to take the, give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. The things we have heard are the things spoken first by the Lord, confirmed to the, by the apostles. And then as God bore witness with signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, you neglect your great salvation by not giving the more earnest heed. Like we talked about this morning, gaining that knowledge takes an incredible amount of effort. It takes diligence. We've got to, to bend our backs to the work of finding out what is the will of the Lord and then doing what the will of the Lord says. It takes a, an earnest heed. That Greek word for more earnest is a Greek word which Vine or Strong defines as more super abundantly emphasizing the intensity of our searching the scriptures to find certainty. Not supposing, but taking advantage of the very gospel that we have at our fingertips. It is God who told us we need to make certain of our salvation and not merely suppose that we're saved and that we're right with him. In 2 Peter 1 and verse 10, he says, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Be more diligent, or as Hebrews 2 says, give a more earnest heed to make your call and election sure. Not suppose that you have an entrance into the everlasting kingdom, but make it sure. It's a certainty. And 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, John shows that the whole reason for his writing of this epistle is so that those who believe in the name of the Son of God may know that they have eternal life and that they may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. He wrote to give them a certainty, not just to suppose. They they may have been supposing that they were right with God and, and therefore they were kind of troubled by that because they didn't have a certainty. These antichrists, false teachers were in their ear telling them things that weren't true, but were shaking their faith. Am I a child of God or am I not? Am I walking in the light or am I not? Because these people are doing something completely different and they're saying that they are the elect. They're saying that they have a special anointing. They're saying that they've got it right. And John writes to give them certainty. Why would we ever suppose that we're right with God? Why would we ever settle with such an uncertainty when God has supplied us with the ability to be certain. Why wouldn't we pursue certainty concerning our salvation? That's what we need is certainty. 
We shouldn't settle for anything less. We should not settle for a supposition. You know, that's what other religions do. You think of Calvinism, where John Calvin taught that God has predestined everyone to salvation or damnation. You're either a reprobate before you were ever born because God said you were going to be a reprobate or you were of the elect. You're a saint. You're going to heaven. And you don't know. There's no way you could know. And that's unsettling. But we know that's not how it works. God has given us a choice. And we can know for certainty whether we're right with Him. And we need to pursue that certainty. It requires a deep introspection as we compare ourselves to the will of God. Notice in 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5 what the Apostle Paul says. He tells those brethren, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? He adds in verse 6, but I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. It's a situation in 2 Corinthians where there were false teachers, opponents of Paul in Corinth, and they were speaking bad about him and and they were puffing themselves up and they were in the ears of the Corinthians trying to gain their trust so that they would forsake Paul in the gospel and follow them in this false gospel. And with all of that chirping in their ears, the Corinthians were starting to doubt whether Paul was a true apostle whether he was from God. And so they were hung up on Paul proving himself as a true apostle. And he proved time and time again. He talked earlier in the epistle about how he doesn't need a a letter of recommendation because you are our epistle. You are our letter of recommendation. You were begotten by the gospel through my preaching. I'm your father in the gospel. That's proof enough. In chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians verse 12, he says, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with perseverance and signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. You saw us perform miracles. How could there be any doubt in your mind? We don't need to prove ourselves. In chapter 13 in verse 2, he says, I have told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. He's saying, if you want to find proof that Christ is in me, just wait till I come and you're still in your sin. I'm not going to spare you. I'm going to come with a rod of discipline, not with joy and comfort in the spirit, but a rod of discipline. Is that what you want? And that's when he goes on to say this, examine yourselves. I'm not the one that needs to prove anything. You've got a lot of problems in Corinth and you need to prove that yourself, you are in the faith or that Jesus Christ is in you. And it's worthy to note that those are synonymous. The relationship with Jesus, him being in us, is something which rests on the object of faith, the gospel. He dwells in us through his word. As John 14, 23, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. You examine yourselves. You make sure that you're not disqualified. And his point is partially that Christ is in you because I'm the one that preached him to you. But there are some, obviously, in sin in Corinth, and maybe you find you're disqualified. You need to fix that before I come. But we're not disqualified, he says. You're the one that needs to test yourselves. The word test is the Greek word dokimazo, and it means by Thayer's definition to test, examine, to prove, scrutinize to see whether a thing is genuine or not as metals. It's used in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7 of the trials that 
our faith is having to undergo, that the genuineness of our faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's tested by the fiery trials of persecution and tribulation. What Paul is telling them to do, though, is prove the genuineness of your faith, prove that you are with Jesus and Jesus is with you, that Christ is in you, that you are in the faith before any of those trials come. And that's what we should do. The trials will come and they'll test us. And we'll have to prove prove ourselves to God through those trials. We'll have to prove the genuineness of our faith. But it's prudent to prove that beforehand. Not to suppose that we're right with God and, and we've got a solid foundation, but to make certain that that is the case. Such a test, I would suggest to you, requires honesty with self. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 18, John says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And that's the standard whereby he says, And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. There were antichrists, those false teachers, the incipient Gnostics who were hating the brethren that John is writing to and claiming to be of God. But anyone who hates their brother is a murderer and does not have God. So he says, this is how you're going to know if we love in word and tongue, but not just in word and tongue, but deed and truth. That's, that's a standard. If you're doing that, then you can assure yourself, your heart, your conscience, that you're right with God. But notice verse 20. If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. If your conscience is clean, you know that you're right according to the standard. You're measuring up. You've compared yourself to the standard and you are not found wanting. Then you have confidence before God. But if your conscience is pricked, if your heart condemns you, You don't have that confidence. And he adds, and God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. I think because, in part, sometimes we try to fool ourselves. We fool everyone else. They don't know about it or or maybe they knew about it, but we fool them into thinking we didn't actually do it or we fool them into thinking that it's not actually wrong, everything's okay. And then sometimes we actually fool ourselves. My heart has condemned me, but I'm going to put that Aside, I'm going to compartmentalize this because it doesn't make me feel good and eventually that feeling will go away. But he says, don't do that because God is greater than your heart. God knows. God can read your heart. And in the end, as Hebrews chapter 4 tells us, that word of God will discern the thoughts and intents of the heart and you'll be laid bare before Him. And He will see. It requires honesty. We don't set that hurt conscience in the background, in the recesses of our mind to forget about it so that we feel good about ourselves. But we test ourselves and we're honest with ourselves so that we can do what is necessary to do to have that certainty. Honesty with self is the best policy. And it not only requires honesty, but it requires a correct standard. That standard is not of yourself or others. In 1 Corinthians 4, 3 through 5, the Apostle Paul said with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. This is what he says. For I know nothing against myself. In other words, his heart doesn't condemn him, but I'm not justified by this. He who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. His opponents in 2 Corinthians were doing that very thing. They were comparing each other with each other. 
And by that, we're making suppositions that they were right with God or they were truly apostles. I I bet that they had convinced themselves that they really were an apostle and Paul wasn't. That's how powerful Satan's deception is. And Paul said this, we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. There's no certainty in that. You may have a supposition based on what you see another person doing in comparison to what you're doing, but there's no certainty in that. We need the correct standard, not a false standard. In Jeremiah, the sixth chapter, Jeremiah addresses a common problem among the Israelites through their history when he says they have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace. When there is no peace, verse 15 of Jeremiah 6, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not ashamed at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall at the time I punish them. They shall be cast down, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. In other words, seek the right standard. Be certain of this. You'll find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Also, I set a watchman over you saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. They were seeking a false standard. There was a time that Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah 50 or 5, rather, in verse 20, when he said, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's abundantly clear in our society today. We don't look after those standards that have been warped who, where there's a perversion of what is right. We won't find certainty there, but we'll only find certainty in the gospel. In Romans, the second chapter in verse six, the 16, the apostle Paul said, there will be the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to his gospel. His gospel is the apostolic gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only gospel that saves, that's what we'll be judged by. In John the sixth chapter, Jesus spoke about that in regard to himself being the bread of life. And whoever consumes his flesh and drinks his blood will have that life. He didn't speak of his literal self and cannibalism, but he's speaking of his words. He is the word of life become flesh. And if they follow him as a disciple and adherent of his teaching and of his life, they're going to have life themselves. And many were offended, so they went away. And Jesus asked the twelve in verse 67, Do you also want to go away? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Why would we go to any other place and then suppose that we're right with God when Jesus has the words of eternal life that we'll be judged by? Chapter 12 and verse 48, He who rejects me and does not receive my words, Jesus says, has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. We examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith, not right with some other man's standard or doing just as well as this other person, so I suppose that's enough. But we examine ourselves to see whether we're right with God. And then, if necessary, perhaps we find that we have become disqualified or we have failed that test. Then we need to repent. We cannot sin and then come to a knowledge of that sin and put it off and put it off and put it off until one day it's not something we're even thinking about anymore. We forgot about it. And then be able to have certainty about our salvation. People do that all the time and they suppose that since they've forgotten, it's been so long that 
God somehow has forgotten it's been so long. But in 2 Peter chapter 3, the Apostle Peter tells us that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. It's as if it just happened. He never forgets. When he talks about how he forgets our sins, he doesn't even talk about how he actually forgets. He, he doesn't remember it ever happened. He's an eternal and omniscient God. Him forgetting our sins is blotting them out, sending them away. It's not to our account anymore. We need to realize that. And when we examine ourselves and find that there's something wrong, we need to make the change. In James, the first chapter, he addresses this in verse 22 when he says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a, a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and it's not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. He's speaking about a man examining himself in the mirror of God's word. And he does this to see whether something's wrong with him or not. And, and he actually finds that something is wrong with him, but he does nothing about it. We would never do that as we examine our physical self in a physical mirror. Why would we ever do that spiritually? Self-examination is pointless if we're not willing to submit to God's word. There in 1 John 5 and verse 13, we noted that God is giving us confidence. He wants us to know for certain that we have eternal life so that we can continue doing what we're supposed to do to have that assurance. And part of that assurance is found earlier in this epistle of 1 John in chapter 1 when he talks about we need to walk in the light as he is in the light because God is light and in him is no darkness at all. But then he addresses the reality that sin may come into our lives again. And you can't just suppose that since we've been walking in the light generally and this is one slip up that that's not going to count. And I'm right with Jesus. That's essentially what some of those Gnostics were doing. And he addresses that verse eight. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I suggest to you this is an individual who has done something that was sinful and the Gnostics thought that the flesh is inherently sinful and so the flesh is going to be sinful and even though I did something sinful, that sin has not affected my soul. I have no sin in my soul. My flesh is not my true self and so I have no sin even though my flesh just sinned. And some people kind of go that direction thinking that since we are inherently corrupt and depraved even though that's a false doctrine, that God is not going to worry about those slight and small sins. I have no sin. I did that, but it's not something that's going to damn my soul. The Catholics have the difference between the venial and mortal sins. There's no such thing in Scripture. A lie unrepented of will take us to hell just as much as murder will. But then he addresses verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And I would suggest to you, here's a situation where God's word says this is sin. But the person who just committed it says, no, it's not sin. And so he makes God a liar. He's trying to convince others and himself that perhaps this isn't an adulterous marriage, that that drinking alcohol isn't a sin, that that this over here that you said was a sin and pointed to the scripture to show me that's that's not really true. You're reading it wrong. You're making Christ a liar. Don't do that. Don't suggest that sin hasn't affected your soul. Don't ignore what God's word has said. If it says you sin, you sin. But instead, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a certainty. You can't just suppose that this sin is small enough where it's not going to 
matter. And you can't just suppose that if I try to twist this text a little bit to convince my brother that what I did was not a sin in despite this clear context, that, that that's going to, to set me free. The only clarity and certainty is in a confession of those sins before God. And that's because he's given us a provision. Verse 2, my little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins. There's still the blood of the Lamb that is there for us. And he goes on to address some things about that in the fifth chapter. Certainly there is no confidence or certainty in sins that are not repented of. He addressed that in chapter 5 and verse 16. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is sin not leading to death. When is sin not leading to death and when is sin leading to death? The soul who sins shall die. As soon as we sin, we die. But that doesn't lead to death outright and eternally if we repent of that and confess it and ask for forgiveness, as chapter 1 indicates. He's still the propitiation for our sins. But if we're unwilling, saying we have no sin or we have not sinned, that sin being left unchecked and unrepented of, it's not rectified, then it won't be forgiven. People may suppose, I'll still get there. I'll still get by. They cannot possibly have certainty. Self-examination is required so that if we find we're disqualified, we can be moved to godly sorrow and repent, which takes much action in proving before God. In verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 7, he says, Godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. And all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. You proved it. You didn't suppose it. You proved it. You proved to yourself that you've repented and you proved to God that you've repented and you proved to your brethren that you are right with God and you're no longer living in that sin. We don't settle for, I suppose, that I'm right with God. But we investigate and we examine and if we find something that needs to be changed and fixed, we do it so that we have certainty. Our souls are of too great of a value to simply suppose that we are in fellowship with God and that He is in fellowship with us. There are things that we can make suppositions about throughout our daily lives, things that are not of eternal significance and importance, but not this. This is too vital for us to make a supposition about either you're certain or you're not right with God. I think that if someone is not able to say that, yes, for sure, I'm right with God, that if Jesus was sent again tonight, I would be judged as faithful. If I passed away tonight, I would be in paradise in the bosom of Abraham. If they cannot say that for certainty, there's probably something wrong. Don't suppose. Make sure make certain. God's given us that ability. Why would we squander that? If you're here this evening and you have not obeyed the gospel, I want to emphasize that God will not let that slip by. Don't make that supposition. Don't be deceived. You need to repent of your sins and obey the gospel before it's everlastingly too late. And if you have obeyed the gospel and there's something spiritually we can assist you with, we invite you to come forward and we stand and sing the song that was selected.